Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. Quinn, thanks for producing and being here. It's been a while, man. It's been a while. City Church, thanks for hosting and have a special guest today. His name is Lamont. And Lamont, say hey to everybody. How you doing? How you doing? It's good to have you here. We uh, had, a, a fr- I guess, a mutual friend. She reached out and said, man, this, this guy, Lamont, you need to see if he wants to be on your podcast. He's got just an interesting life and a story. And I think you'd be a good person to have on the podcast. So I reached out to you. We had a phone conversation and you said, let's do it. And we actually had to reschedule it because of the lockdown, the coronavirus and social distancing. And now that we're getting a little bit more freedom in that, we can start doing the podcast again. So you're our first guest after that. And just appreciate you being here, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a couple firsts lately. This this is awesome. This speaking thing is taking off for me. Is it good? Well, um, there, There's an open mic venue that I do. Yeah. And I they moved they started a new venue and I was the first poet that they had for that venue, starting that new series that they're hoping to carry on further. So yeah. I thought that was awesome. All right, cool. We'll talk a little bit about your poetry, maybe towards the end and what you're doing, you know, now these days and stuff. Okay. But at the beginning of the podcast, I always ask our guests like help paint a picture of what it was like for little Lamont growing up, man. What was the the neighborhood like, the the family dynamic and where uh where you were living and stuff. How 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 was life like for you? Okay, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my mom and dad, they're from the country. They're from, my mom's from Defusky. My dad's from Hilton Head Island. Hmm. So it's really crazy that between my mom and dad's side, Spanish Well is my mom's side of the family. Bagal over by the airport is my dad's side. So between the two families, everybody on Hilton Head is kin to me. So I can't ever over, go over there and look for a girlfriend. She has to be a totally different race or something. I promise you it's crazy. But um, I got to spend time traveling back and forth between Savannah and New York after my mother and father broke up. And uh, then I started traveling, flying down to Miami to go see family down there, her brothers and sisters that moved down to Miami and spending summers in the country with my other family members, my um, both mom and dad. So I had that kind of quaint childhood growing up where I got to do cool things like that, even though I grew up living in the projects because I lived in Fred Wessels, Garden Homes, and East 32nd Street, right between Price and East Broad, which is used to be called Hazard County. Yeah, here in Savannah, okay. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, are your parents still both alive? Did you have a good relationship with both of them when they separated when you were growing up? Or what was, what was that? Like, um, no, both of my parents are still alive. I'm blessed that way because a lot of my friends have lost their parents recently, and I don't know that loss or that hurt yet. And mm-hmm. I'm bracing for that day that I have to. But uh, my dad, it's it's he was a good guy. He's he's a good guy in the fact that I can't ever say that my dad didn't keep track of me. Like my mom would move and leave no forwarding address or anything. And at some point, my dad would just pop up on the doorstep one day, and he lived in New York still, in Brooklyn. So it was the craziest thing just to be walking to the front door to go answer the door. And 
daddy. And he was there and he showed me love. He always let me know I was loved and he didn't exclude me from things or leave me out when he had the opportunity to bring me into it. And I am his oldest child out of 10. Mm. And my mom's, um, on my mom's side, I'm the middle child and the only child. Mm. She had one before me, one after me, and neither survived. So I get to be the oldest, the, the, the oldest, the middle, and the only child. Oh, well done. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty well, impressive. Well, if you go by Freud, I'm a little schizo for that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can get into that a little bit later, too, if that's true. Um, uh, what about life in the projects? You said you grew up in the projects, and what, what, uh, how did that mold who you were growing up? I grew up at a time when we still had Caucasian people in the projects because even though it's predominantly black nowadays, mm -hmm. it was originally built as housing for the wives, sisters, and mothers of soldiers that had gone off to serve in World War II. Hmm. And, you know, we weren't allowed to move in until the civil rights era. So we had a diverse culture in, in, the, in the neighborhood. And I would go play with my neighbors up the street, Matthew, that ran down through Hurricane David, a Category 5 storm when he hit Savannah, to bring me my grandmother a candle. I mean, could you imagine a little white boy running down the streets of Frere Wessel's projects, no shirt on, just some shorts, no shoes, in the middle of a hurricane, full blast. And he brings us this big red candle that my mother actually still has for my grandmother to this day. Wow. And I'd love to find that dude because he was a good friend. Hmm. And um, it was before all the violence and the drugs and the gang stuff started here in Savannah, at least. So it was a real different community. It was community. You know, you knew some of everybody and there was still a good chance that if you got off the school bus acting fool, Miss So-and-so could tear you up before you got home and be making phone calls so that when you got home, there was a belt waiting to receive you when you walked in the door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it it was one of those things where you could still tell a, a parent that their child was wrong and the parent actually listened to your side of events to understand what's going on instead of like it is today where they jump on you automatically. My child ain't wrong. Don't be talking about my child. You didn't raise a saint. You got a child. Children are cruel. Mm -hmm. So was the um, was there diversity in the school you were going to or was it just reflected in your neighborhood? No, I went to uh, Charles Hurdy Elementary. That was a diverse school. Um, it's a set of condos now on Skidaway. Mm -hmm. yeah, Skidaway right at the top of Anderson, I think. Next to Mario Land, it's a set of condos now. That's my old elementary school. But no, it was a very diverse staff, very diverse classroom staff. Um, I had a young man in my class that was from Finland. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know the little pencils where they have the little adapters with the pencil lead in it? You can sit there and kind uh -huh. of... Yeah. He brought those over from Finland and gave me one before they ever hit the United States. Back in the 80s. <laughs> so it was so cool to have him as a friend. And he kind of sparked my love of language. Um, I, back when, when Mickey D's used to have the calendars they would do that you could color, but every month was a different language. You could learn to count in Chinese, Spanish. So I would do that and I would talk to him about stuff and 
he'd teach me little things and it was cool. That's really interesting. So when did you, when do you remember like race actually becoming an issue for you where you noticed it differently, whether it was here in Savannah or somewhere else where it wasn't just kids like hanging out, we're all cool. And now this is something that, Hey, I'm, I'm black now. Like people might be looking at me differently. Was it an age thing or an experience thing or other people talking about it or? No, it was always in the background. That was never a way because the mindset here in Savannah, like, like, with literally the last 20, 30 years here in Savannah, people in Savannah that are native to the city are just getting used to the idea of seeing a white person and a black person walk down the street together and not automatically thinking that it's drug related. Or to see a Mexican person or a person from India or Chinese, China and automatically assume that every person that looks like they're Asian automatically has to be Chinese. They're just starting to broaden their viewpoints and realize that this is now an international city, hmm. you know. So it was always in the background when I was younger. It was a, it was the 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 conversation that came down from the elders that, um, you know, not all white people are bad people, but just remember that some of them are out to get you just because of your skin color, and you know it. I didn't really ever have any early childhood moments of segregation or dis or, dis or discrimination, as far as I can remember. I would have weird experiences like being one of eight black kids in the classroom. We got three white kids in the classroom, and these two white kids are trying to buy my friendship. Like literally, the guy comes in and goes, "Here, I've got five dollars." I'll give you $5 if you be my friend. Other guy goes, I'll give you 10. And the next day the kid comes back and he goes, bam, I've got 20, beat it. And I'm looking at these two kids like, are you serious? Thank you. That's impressive, man. What kind of skills did you have? Conversation. Just like it is, huh? I mean, I'm, into, I'm a geek. So games, <laughs> games, toys, Star Wars, collectibles, all that stuff. You, you just know. knew how to talk the language to everybody like you. Yeah. That's really cool. So what let's transition to, you know, teenage years or like going through high school life and maybe even as you're entering after high school, like what, what's time like that for you? Now, high school was an odd experience for me because we lived on the east side of Savannah most of my young life from um, Fred Wessels, Garden Homes Projects. Um, then we were on Wahlberg and Paulson in an apartment complex in my eighth grade year, my mom bought a house on the West side. So at two, a couple things happened right then. Chatham County switched up their schooling system so that the grades were divided differently. Like when you hit sixth grade, you were considered to be a elementary student. But when you hit seventh grade, seventh, eighth, ninth, were together in middle school. Well, they split ninth grade and moved it up to high school and pushed sixth grade into middle school. Mm -hmm. So that all the little kids I thought I left behind me that, that, that last year, suddenly they're at middle school with me too. And I'm going, I thought I left you behind. So when I got to high school, I moved from the east side to the west side and I lost all my friends. Mm -hmm. Everybody that I, been growing up with my entire young life, my cousins that were in the city, 
All of them ended up at Savannah High. I ended up over at Beach. And for the first probably year that we lived on the west side, I would ride my bike back over to the east side almost every day just to hang out with those friends because I didn't know anybody on this on the west side of town. So I had to bring that conversational skill and charming personality back to the front to try and make new friends. And I met some awesome people. Hmm. So it was overall a good experience. Like you were able to, even though you lost your friends, you were able to overcome that a little bit and have a good high school experience or was it tough? It was, it was not necessarily tough. It was different. Yeah. The, the, the toughest thing was my ninth grade year, I'm in social studies and we're studying um, Africa. And I'm reading through it, get down to the very last paragraph of the of the chapter. And they mentioned that sickle cell patients, you know, primarily come from African descendants. And they generally don't live to be older than 15 years old. Well, I'm 14. I have sickle cell. And I go home and I have a mental meltdown. Oh, wow. And like, I just break down and cry for a couple hours, actually, about it. And had to pull myself together. But when I pulled myself together, I kind of went into a very uh, nihilistic viewpoint. Like, what does tomorrow matter if I'm going to die anyway? Because of sickle cell, I'm not going to make it to be 14. So I started kind of walking around with that. Not necessarily death wish, but at the same time, I didn't really care. So I was prone to doing all kind of crazy little stunts or whatever my friends would suggest I'd be right there with it. Even if it was something that could possibly get us killed, I was right there with it just because my mind said, well, sickle cell is going to kill you. Well, how, how often did you have to go to the, the hospital when you had sickle cell growing up? My mom was a stickler about the whole hospital things and medical bills, and she ain't got no money. She's a single parent. So I had a, there was a personal rule that existed in the house, which was you have to be sick two weeks straight for me to take you to the hospital. Wow. So for me, dealing with my sickle cell when I was young was a lot of being in bed, drinking Gatorade and eating chicken noodle soup and being rubbed down with liniment. Green rubbing alcohol with some herbs and stuff mixed in it that smells really, really terrible. Mm-hmm. But it clears your sinuses real well. I bet. And um, that that would be the treatment. Wrap my legs up or my arms up, whatever was hurting, with some ace bandages. And so I had learned to deal with pain on a whole different level when I was young. Hmm. And um, I would say I would be sick. I'd get a, a major crisis at least two or three times, maybe four times a year. Like blood transfusions kind of stuff or not not that quite? It probably did need it. But like I said, my mom wouldn't take me to it. the hospital. Yeah. If it didn't last longer than two weeks, then I didn't end up in the hospital. And one of the things I can remember is being put in the hospital one time because I was sick. And finding out later that the reason I was put in the hospital is because I was a picky eater and I was actually put in for malnutrition because I refused to eat my vegetables. And that set off a crisis and put me in the hospital for a while. Hmm. And um, it, it played a part in high school because the school counselor 
worked with me and the Sickle Cell Foundation and the Board of Education, and they basically gave me a free pass, whereas my days absent from school would be, um, wouldn't be counted against me. Yeah. So I'd get homeschooled sometimes. I'd get, um, I could go to my teachers and get my extra home, my classwork I missed. So, of course, being a kid, I'm going to sit there and take advantage of this yeah, that's one. that's not bad, man. Dude, I would do this number here. I'd walk in the homeroom class, look at my teacher and go, hey, Ms. Bowens, I'm not here today. That simple. I'm not here today. And I'd go to the classes I wanted to or that I knew I needed to gather that work and leave campus by lunchtime. Man. Did anybody else in your family have it or has it? Yeah. Um, okay, so my full name is Lamont Dwayne Bryant. And I had a cousin whose name is, it was Edward Dwayne Bryant. And the anniversary of his death is actually coming up real soon. Sorry, man. <clears throat> that was my that was my twin. That was out of all my cousins, that was my cousin. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from his sister in May, May of like 2014, 2015, like two o'clock in the morning, she just said, we lost that. And I didn't have to ask any deeper what you mean we lost Ed. Where's he at? No, I knew what she meant. Mm -hmm. But to hear the story that she had to tell me behind it made it that much more tragic. He died because he went to the ER for a sickle cell crisis. They gave him some medicine that, they, that was already in his profile that he's allergic to, pain medicine. And he went home and he stopped breathing. They sent him home and he stopped breathing. And his wife is performing CPR on him to try and keep her husband here with us. And then his sister comes in, she's a doctor, and she's performing CPR on her brother in front of his wife knowing that her brother's gone. Mm -hmm. And it was, like I said, that was my twin. His name was Edward Dwayne Bryant. And we wanted to be architects and we were going to draft blueprints together because he was a draftsman. And I picked up draftsman skills when I went to Savannah Tech. And we just talked about it, like, not even, not even, not even 30 days before he died. He can't. Sorry, man. He came down to visit me. He just surprised me. It was awesome because... Like, 
I married my ex-girlfriend's cousin. He married his ex-girlfriend's cousin or something like that. <laughs> we had our first children with these women. And the day that my son was born, he and his family came down to visit. So I have a picture of, of his sister holding his daughter and his wife holding my son the day that my son was born. And both of them are hand babies because they were literally born like a couple months apart, two or three months apart. Mm. And it, it was always a good relationship with, with him. Him and his dad and his sisters and brother that was one of those branches of family that I always really loved going to spend the summers with. I'd go up to Ridgeville, South Carolina with them and be out in the country. Well, you know, just seeing how much his life and his death affects you now, like how, how did you deal with it in the, the days or the weeks afterwards? Like what kind of impact did that loss of that kind of person have on you when, when it actually happened? I was dealing with a lot at that moment. Um, living with my girlfriend, we just had a baby. So here I am at 40 odd years of age. And my oldest child was 17 and now I have a newborn. And then the fears of something happening to me started to creep in and the paranoias and the worries. So now I'm trying to do stuff to prepare or trying to deal with this overwhelming sense of urgency. Like this isn't just urgency. This is immediate. This is immediate. You have to do something now. And all of that led right up into the story that brought me here. So in actuality, I still really haven't had a chance. I haven't really unpacked everything about it, I guess. I mean, that's clear by... Yeah, obviously. Still work in progress. Well, let's, um, let's backtrack for a couple things, and then we'll go to the story that, that brought you here. Okay. Um, but, so we kind of jumped from, from high school to <laughs> 40 almost, and yeah, you yeah, mentioned yeah. Savannah Tech, and once you get out of high school, did you... Did you try to get a job and go work or did you try to go to college or what was what was kind of life's plan for you after getting out of high school or did you have one? Oh, no. Mom said you get a job once <laughs> you're old enough to get one. So at 14, <laughs> I had my first job. I had learner's permit, uh -huh. all that good stuff. And I worked off and on throughout yeah. the four years of high school. The plan was this. I was going to go into the Air Force with one of my best friends. We were both going to go into to the Air Force. Um, and I go out to Travis Field, and I take the ASVAB, and I do the physical. I got a faster time than everybody. I lifted more weights than everybody. I did more reps than everybody. And I get to the end of the finish line of the course, and I'm breathing hard. And I walk up to the doctor, and he opens my medical file, oh, no. and he closes it right back. Yeah. 
And he said, I'm sorry, son, based on the fact that you have sickle cell anemia, you are disqualified from military service. There's some orange juice over there. Go have a cup get a, and catch your breath. Mm. And I came home from that in meltdown number two. Yeah. Like my mom was home. My mom was working two jobs to, to take care of her family, me, me and her, buy this home, keep her car. So when I got home, there was nobody there. So I had that entire time that she was at work for about two or three hours. And then for whatever reason, she was late that day. So I had extra time to just melt down completely. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, pull myself together because I, I really wanted to get out of Savannah. I wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than myself. I wanted to go Air Force and I think they call him J J J Dog J J Dag. Basically, what they are is forward air controllers, mm -hmm. and some of them are also forward field medics that go out and they're right there with the with the seals and the rangers in the thick of things, you know, way ahead of the main body. And you know, I, I had James Bond fantasies growing up. I'm sorry, I wanted to be the spy who loved me. Yeah. But um, I decided that I was going to go to Savannah Tech. So once I got that little bit out of my system, I went straight, registered. And the way that it rolled out was that I, because as smart as I was, I also was a bit of a daydreamer and also didn't really care because the work was too easy in school. So I ended up in summer school every year after ninth grade. Mm. And I graduated out of summer school. So that means that when everybody else graduated in June, I graduated in August. And from August to September, I went straight to Savannah Tech. I didn't take a break. And I made it through my first couple of semesters, Dean's, um, dean's List, took up um, electronic engineering technology. Learned how to draft, learned how to program. I'd always liked computers. I taught myself basic when I was a kid living in garden homes on a Commodore VIC-20 computer. And yeah, I got that for Christmas one year. I, I, uh, somebody stole my bike. And instead of getting another bike that Christmas, I asked my mom for a computer instead. And I sat there that Christmas day teaching myself how to type in basic programs hmm. from the back of the Commodore VIC-20 book. And so I went to take to do that. And around, Around my second semester, so we were going from fall to winter, I got sick. Like, I got sick. Um, Shoney's used to have a breakfast buffet up on Victory Drive. Oh, Shoney's, man. That's old school. I used to love Shoney's buffet. Yeah. But them, them runny scrambled eggs did me in. <laughs> I, um... Developed a fever of 108. I uh, had um, salmonella poisoning. And I ended up in Canada for a day short of a month. Wow. Like I went in on Martin Luther King Day and I came out just shy of my birthday on February 20th. And I went from being a 145 pound frat boy partying, drinking, doing all the things that I'm not supposed to be doing because I got sickle cell. But it was a blast. I pledged Alpha Phi Omega at, um, and we had a chapter at, at Savannah Tech at the time. 
and they rolled it into the Royal Epsilon chapter at State, and we rolled the Armstrong chapter into the chapter at State. But at that time, we had three active chapters in the area. So I did the frat boy thing, and I got sick. And I learned how fleeting friendship is. Mm. Because when I went from partying and hanging out to being in a hospital bed for a week, there were people that walked in that room that I've never seen since. And the whispers started that, oh, he's dying of AIDS. And it, it yeah, yeah. yeah. And I can remember waking up one day in the hospital and being told that I was going to have to get blood. And the way that they told me this was really, really funny. Nurses come in first thing in the morning. I've got six nurses in my room. I've never seen six nurses in my room and I wasn't in the middle of distress. Something's going down. Yes. And so they're changing the sheets because I'm totally immobile for the most part. I can barely feed myself. I can't get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I can barely roll over from side to side. I'm so weak. They've got me on an ice blanket. There's literally a little nightstand sized machine that pumps cold water through this mat, kind of like they do for the astronauts on spacesuits. Hmm to try and drop my temperature. Yeah, real comfortable experience. You get a rectal thermometer, all that good stuff. Sounds fun. <sighs> the experiences in my head that I can't unthink and unfeel. And uh, so they start talking to each other while I'm laying there, looking up at them. And they're going, does he know that? Does he know? I don't think he knows. Does he know he's going to get blood today? I don't think he knows. Mr. Brian? Yes. Do you know you're going to get blood today? No. Well, yeah, you're going to get blood today and you're going to get about two units. No. Well, yeah, you're going to get... No, you're not understanding me. I'm just saying no. I refuse the blood. Get my mom in here. Get my doctor in here. Get whomever in here you need to to explain to me why I need this blood. So give it an hour and a half, two hours. Everybody's assembled. My mom, my doctor, the specialist they called in. Everybody's there. Mm -hmm. And they go, well, uh, the reason that we're here is that we are going to talk to you about getting blood. We're going to get you typed and cross-matched and all the training. I'm like, hold up, wait. One simple question. Can you promise me that this blood is going to be true? I mean, clean? Uh, no, we can't. And the reason I need this blood is, well, your, your red blood cell count has dropped down to two. And I said, pause. Let me guess the rest. My red blood cell count has dropped down to two, which means that the red blood cells, there aren't enough of them circulating through my body to carry oxygen to all my cells, especially my brain, which means that I will start shutting down on a systemic level body-wide and end up slipping into a coma and not waking up. And you're like, how'd you realize that? I paid attention in biology. What you mean? <laughs> so there I am at 19 being faced with, do you take the blood now Hope that it's clean mm -hmm. because they hadn't come up with the definitive test for AIDS for the blood system yet. Or do you refuse the blood and die now? So take it, possibly die later. Don't and die now. So I accepted the blood. Yeah. And 
There's a lot of stuff they don't explain to you about this whole exchange of body tissue and fluids and stuff. It changes your personality. You inherit some of the knowledge from the DNA of the other person. That's crazy. I never, I'm not saying you're crazy. I'm just saying that's crazy. I have cadaver bone in my in my right hip. No, my left hip. I have cadaver bone in there. Um, the donor smoked. I didn't really smoke like that. Like I would pose with a cigar. I was a poser. <laughs> Got a cigar hanging out the corner of my mouth. Yeah. Just don't look cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I never really inhaled. Mm-hmm. After that, yeah, I'm a smoker. <laughs> wow. And they, and I've read some articles and some papers about it that, yes, certain traits of donors have popped up in the recipients later. So you're 19, going through all this chaos, and then you're given all this blood, like you mentioned, your cadaver bone, like you feel like you're not even fully who you were before, or it's confusing, and that's just a weird time, man. And feeling like, nervous about life and death decisions, literally what your life is going to be like. My mom, I was sitting there during one of these situations where the doctor's explaining what's going on, what's being done. And I watched my mom's eyes glaze over and I realized that she's no longer present in the room. The message is completely gone over her head. Mm -hmm. And I realized then that I had to take care of my health care. I had to take over control and inform myself, learn, and teach myself what this man is talking about because mama doesn't know. And it's not her job anymore. It's my job. So um, after I have this event where I'm in the hospital for a day short of a month, they release me, send me home. My right shoulder swells up to the size of a grapefruit. It's hot to the touch, burning. Mom drops me off at the ER, says, hey, I got to go to work. I'm the only one here paying the bills. You got to deal with this yourself. By the time they called her that afternoon around, that was 7 o'clock in the morning. By the time they called her that afternoon at about 3 o'clock, they were rushing me into emergency surgery. The seminal infection that I had the prior month got into the shoulder capsule that I cracked because the nurses would ask me to pull myself up in the bed and I'd reach over my head and do this with the rail and pull myself up. Now it's an infection in the bone. Oh, geez. That's no good. They took me down for seven IND operations, irrigation and debridement. And my doctor, I love this guy. He's, he's been with me since then. Good, good man. And um, he took care of that, and then it was after this shoulder, they said, well, we're gonna take the left shoulder while it's still a good replacement, but there's nothing wrong with it. They're gonna take it anyway. So then both shoulders are gone. I've got this shoulder been replaced because of the damage, because of the infection and the amount of bone and stuff that they had to remove from it. So I walked around for almost two years with this arm in a sling before they deemed that the infection had stayed out of it and was gone and it was safe to be replaced. Meanwhile, they already replaced this one. Then my right hip. How do you walk around without a shoulder? You keep it in the sling. You keep the arm in the sling. So there's literally no shoulder bone? There was no no complete shoulder bone. So there's like 
something else that's temporary or just nothing there. there like, I'm a, feeling my shoulder right now. Like that bone is gone. Like they when at that point in time, they'd gone in and removed bits and pieces of it. So the shoulder bone, the shoulder joint was in pieces. Uh, so there's a, a bit of bone carved out here. Wherever they had to sit there and carve out dead bone. Oof. That's nasty, man. So I have a scar on the back of the shoulder and I have one on the front. And these scars have been opened multiple times within a week. They did this. Hmm. And then they replaced the right shoulder to be a complete replacement while it was still good. My right hip got, my um, my left hip got infected with the salmonella poison. And again, it popped back up in my left hip. Sent me up to Medical College of Georgia. They did a core decompression to try and remove the dead bone and leave the divot there to heal on its own and hope that the bone grew back and regenerated, and it didn't. While that hip was going through that problem, the right hip collapsed totally out of nowhere. So at 20, 21, 22, I'm walking around on grinding bones looking like an old man with crutches and canes and walkers. It's like the prime of your life too, like that age. I can remember when Sam's was still open over on um, Ogeechee, being in there sitting in a wheelchair. I'm in line getting ready to check out. And this guy just walks up and stands right here in front of me. And I realized that how much things under our eyesight we ignore. Whether it's the homeless person laying on the ground the handicapped person in the wheelchair. And it's not necessarily that you don't that you're being mean. It's just out of sight, out of mind. And that was one of those experiences that made me go, okay, you know what? I'm not going to look at people, look down on people like that. I'm not going to just assume that it must be something they did mm-hmm. to be that way. Oh, how poor, poor you. You know, people get sympathy and empathy mixed up. Like I was saying, I still have my parents. So when I'm talking to someone that's lost their parents, it's a very, you're trying to be nice to say, I'm so sorry. But you're still saying, I'm so sorry for you. Yeah, you don't know yet. And then you want to talk about divorce? You want to talk about going through operations. You want to talk about having car accidents, um, having children. You can talk about all that stuff. I can empathize with you because I've been there, done that. Mm-hmm. And you did, you mentioned two children. Is yes. that the only two? I only have two biological. Okay. And I think what you said was like there's about 17 years apart. Yes. Now, do they have any sickle cell or any of the health things where they pass down from you? To them where they have to deal with any of those kind of things that you have to deal with my son doesn't fortunately he's now in the air force he got to do what his dad oh, wants that's to really do. cool yeah yeah it's actually very cool because he said he was going to the naming and stuff first and then it turned into the air force eventually so i was like oh. yeah sweet do better than your father go do the things i didn't do in my life be better than me. Don't be me. Be better than me. And my daughter, um, she has the trait, and she does have some. Doctors will tell you that there is no active pathology behind sickle cell trait. 
It doesn't do anything. They're lying. They don't know. They don't have sickle cell trait. I see my daughter do the same thing I used to do when I was a kid. She'll be running around playing, and she's overdoing it. She'll come back and say, Daddy, my leg hurt. Mm -hmm. Daddy, my knee hurt. And she cries, and she can't sleep. So I have to give her some Tylenol fever reducer plus pain relief. And she goes to sleep, make her drink some water. She feels better. I can remember having the discussion with my son's mother when she told me that she was pregnant with him and that she couldn't remember if it was her or her twin sister that had the trait and begging her to have an abortion because I didn't want my child to be born in this world and be sick like I was and that I'm the cause of him being that way. And I was blessed that he didn't, he, he wasn't. And at least with my daughter is, so far it hasn't been anything that is major, major like my, but she does have some issues that I noticed and I really believe they're related to sickle cell and having a weakened immune system. Yeah, so that's gotta give a little bit of anxiety, almost like you're waiting for something to happen. <sighs> she suffers with bronchitis, chronic bronchitis on a regular. So this whole thing that's been going on, yeah, I'm just sitting here like, ooh, wash hands, wash hands. And it's her first year in school. Yeah. Because she didn't do pre-K. She just went straight to kindergarten. And so all the getting sick that you do in pre-K, she's getting it now. Wow. Man, that's a lot going on there, man. That's a lot <sighs> going on. And, you know, we've had one one guest on here with sickle cell, and it's just until I kind of met her, it wasn't really introduced to me and didn't know a whole lot about it. And it's really intense and hard to go through from what I've seen from her and hearing your story. It's, it's just no joke. And you don't know when stuff's going to happen either. I think that's part of the, the struggle is just the, the mental and emotional side of I might even be feeling good, but at any moment it could go bad quick. When I was a kid with living with my grandmother, my mom's mom and Fred Wessel, we would walk to the, um, Grocery store right across, the, right up the street, it used to be called Food Fair. And it was right there in the corner of like Price and Oglethorpe. And we would walk in, and as we're walking through the store, just walking through the meat section was enough to set off a sickle cell crisis. Hmm. You know, and have me at the house, balled up in pain, screaming and crying for the next week or two. And I'm a lot more tolerant than I used to be. But yeah, that the best way I can describe the pain is take a blood pressure cuff, wrap it on your around your arm, and pump it up too tight. Mm -hmm. That's about what the pain feels like. And then for some of us, it moves. So it might be your elbow. Now, then 30 minutes later, it's your wrist. 20 minutes later, it's your knee. It, yeah, it's got travel plans. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one way of putting it. Oh, man, that's that's tough stuff. Well, I, I do want to get to the kind of the story of originally why you were even kind of suggested to like, hey, talk to Lamont about, about this kind of experience he's had. So I want to kind of jump ahead to something you've been facing with over, the, you know, pretty recently as, as well, like some of your recent life experiences and particular event and however you'd like to describe it or kind of 
present it to us. You know, it's up to you. Okay. When I talk, when I said that my cousin passed away and that that was around the time that my daughter was born and that kind of was at the beginning of the story that brought me here. I was working for a military surplus um, company that was based near Hunter Air Force Base. <laughs> and I started out as a little part-time gig, something to do. You know, my girl said, baby, I said job. I was already on disability. I already had an income coming in. But baby, job, got it. So while I'm there, I endeared myself to the ownership of the company. I provided them with useful services. I was good at what I did. I made the customers feel happy. I got them what they needed. And we dealt mostly with CIF, which is the Central Issue Facility. So when soldiers are going into the military, they get issued stuff. And when they're leaving, they have to replace what's missing. And if you don't, then the government comes at you and goes, hey, your last paycheck, I need some of that back. Right. You owe me for this. So we would buy, sell, and trade with the soldiers to get what they needed. So if they were going out to the field and they needed gloves and boots and backpacks or strap or a holster, whatever it was they needed, we tried to have it. And it got to a point that once the soldiers learned that they could get money for the stuff that they were bringing to us, then a whole new situation arose where some of everything started walking through the door. Guns, the bulletproof shield that separates the pilot from the gunner and the Apache, um, a scimitar that was an award that was engraved with the person who received his name on it. And this razor shop is the real deal. Um, ballistic plates for the for the trauma plates for the vest for the um bulletproof vest soldiers wear. Mm -hmm. All right, guns. And the guns became the problem because now everybody's got their idea of how they want this to move. And the owner was being given, you know, advice from over here, advice from over there. This person has been doing it for a while. Oh, this person says that you can sell it without a license as long as you don't sell this too many guns or you can keep all these guns as long as you say that you're part of your private collection. And it was a bunch of bad advice that led to a situation where um, his wife jumped on my daughter's mother in the store. They A physical altercation in the front of the store, broad light on Montgomery Street, right down the street from the gate. The MPs are right there. And she dove on my daughter's mom because she did not want those N-words behind the counter. Hmm. Even though I was the one that was the store manager allowing your husband to have time to spend with you after he's made all this money today because I'm making these great sales. You came in for a pair of boots, well, you know what, your boots, yeah, they're shot, but you smell like J12, you smell like Jet Fuel, man. When's the last time you bought a new, a new uh, Kim suit? We got one in the back right now. I know it's normally like, what? Four or five hundred dollars, we get it for two fifty. I upset. That's the upsell, and I was good at it, and I made the customers feel comfortable, and I went above and beyond to make sure that the soldiers of our community had the things they needed. 
the fight turned into a scenario where the husband and wife are now diametrically opposed. She's seeing things one way, he's seeing things a different way. And... Was she racist to you before or your family? Oh, yeah. Okay, so this... At least that kind of language wasn't... Feelings yeah. weren't new. That that was the first time I ever heard her say the N-word. He put her on speakerphone after the incident was over and she'd gone home to her family. But she called him back and he said, I want you to hear how she talks. And he let me listen. And I was like, wow, she really said that. When she won't get out of her bed to come run the business for you or with you. But she wants all the respect of being the owner's wife. Mm -hmm. And I'm supposed to be, as she told me one time, she said, all y'all men are like, y'all are all dogs that can't be trained. I'm not your pet. You don't pay me. He signs my checks, not you. I'm here to run this store, not clean out your car and run personal errands for you. I'm here to make sure that this store is successful. And so in the course of all of that, gun sales started to occur. And they had the forms to fill out and make me fill out. But one of the sales was to an ATF agent in the undercover, undercover ATF agent in a snitch. And they walked in. And it was funny because just that morning, the owner told me and his father-in-law, hey, don't let anybody go back there in that cage. Because we had the old Big Tom's pawn shop building. There was a cage to keep the guns locked up in back there. And two guys walk in. Oh, yeah, these are my friends from Florida. Yeah, they're longtime friends of mine. Come on, check out my shop. His stepfather was always, a, his, his father-in-law was always a braggart. Everything was his. You didn't help set up nothing, dude. You just came in on the tail end of this. But okay. Takes them in the cage. Guys go, yeah, 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 we want to buy some stuff. They come back. They bought two guns. Came back. They bought two more guns. Now, I wasn't there for all of those transactions. I just know that those transactions occurred because that's what they told me later when I talked about it with them. And I'm on my way to work one day, and I see one of the co-partners going this way down Montgomery Street, and my phone starts ringing. And he's like, Lamont, you going to work? I was like, no, nah, I'm off today. He's like, all right, where you heading? I said, up the shoes on the rent. He's like, okay, meet me there. And he lays out to me what's going on. The ATF done raided the store, and they've got the owner sitting here looking crazy. They've shut the store down, and they're going through the inventory. Okay, um, I'm going to ride by and see how you're doing. So I ride, pull up there, to see the owner sitting down, talking to the agents. And I just kind of got a distance from him and nodded, you all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. I continue to work. Should have quit. Yeah. To this day, my daughter's mom says that's the biggest mistake that I made. I should have left right then. When the business partner who knew the owner longer than I had left, I should have left. Mm -hmm. But I was being loyal. And then I saw the success of the company. And I saw where we were getting ready to open up another store down in Hinesville. And we were getting ready to purchase the warehouse that's right next to Yellow Cab on Staley Avenue. And that I was going to be the manager of the whole company. 
helped him flip it into an LLC, brought in the accountants, brought in the, the, the proper bank accounts, people, bank type of bank accounts and stuff, helped get this stuff together and have it done properly, not a DBA doing business as, but a proper LLC. And there was another raid by the ATF. This time I'm at work. And I've got a store full of customers. I'm on the phone with one of the other military stores trying to get um, uh, some items for customer that's standing there talking to me. And the ATF comes in full kit, submachine guns, ARs, everything. Agent, she comes up to me, Lamont, put your hands back and see him. Put your hands back and see him right now. When, when she walked in, I did this number here. And she goes, put your hands where I can see him. I said, excuse me, one moment, please. You see that there's a phone in my left hand and you can clearly see my right hand and my sidearm is on my right hip. You can see that everything's okay. Chill your nerves. I'll finish this phone call and I'll deal with you shortly. All right, excuse me, sir. I'm sorry. There's been a complication right now. Let me go ahead and get your call back later and I'll complete that order. Okay, thank you. ATF. These people promised me that they were going to do exactly what they did to me. They tried to flip me. They tried to get me to be uh, uh, to work for them. They came to my house, knocked on my door, seven o'clock in the morning. Boom, boom, boom. Looked at my daughter's mom. She looked at me. I was like, "Cops. Only they knock like that." Yeah. Sure enough, ATF. This is agent, this is agent, special agent, so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, we want to know how you move up from being the guy that hangs up ribbons in the corner to being the guy that's now the manager of the company. Well, if you hired me, you'd find out my worth too and see why I'm such a valuable tool. And they were like, well, well why don't you come work for us? You ever work for the police? It's, it doesn't work out very well for you in the end. Well, you never work for us. I'm sorry, you're just bigger police. Okay? Look where we're at. We're in the middle of the hood. If you had anything significant on me, we wouldn't be having this conversation on my porch. We'd be having it downtown. You wouldn't come to my house politely. This ain't the suburbs. You're not going to come and ring my doorbell and go, ding dong, Mr. Fine, could you please come downtown and talk with us? You're going to come kick it in my door and scare my family. So, no. We're not doing that. Okay. Go back to the company. I'm doing my job. There's another phone call. Somebody said, uh, the owner. The owner was coming from one of the other facilities that he um, owned. And he goes, there's a bunch of cops up at the warehouse, and I can't get, in, get anybody on the phone. Um, what do you think happened? By this time, he's already been arrested in a rain he's already been arrested for um selling guns without a license he got a lawyer lawyer told him to get all the guns at the place anything that's supposed to disappear needs to go away at some point during this process guy comes in he has a bag he goes i heard you like interesting things I go, sure i do 
I've had a great day. I've seen a lot of interesting things. You'd have to do a lot to make me get off this purse string right here. And he shows me what's in the bag, and I look in the bag. Um, boss, you got to come see this. No, no, no. That's above my pay grade. You got to see this for yourself. 15 minutes. Okay. He said he'd be here in 15 minutes. Guy says, okay, I'm going to leave. I'll be back in 15 minutes. Exactly 15 minutes. Military precision. They both walk in the door. Hmm. I go, oh, cool, great. Boss, this is the guy that you need to talk about to meet, talk with you. This is the boss. Okay. They talk. They come to an agreement of sorts. And the boss pulled me aside and he goes, what do you think about what you saw? What I saw in the bag that I now know for a fact, according to what the court paperwork and everything says, is that this those were non-high explosive, dual purpose, 40 millimeter grenade rounds hmm. that somehow got loose from the custody of the military chain of custody and fell into civilian hands. The person that brought them had on a uniform, but his rank wasn't his rank. Because there's nowhere, they have a black dot rank. It's a cadet, I think. There's nowhere cadet is going to have access to those kind of rounds. And what I learned as I got out of my incarceration was that those rounds are so illegal to possess that they can only be possessed by a U.S. soldier in an active theater of war. So it's almost illegal for the cops to possess them as evidence in my situation. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, um, I told him, I said, look, if you ever thought that a school bus, a mosque, the gate at a hunter might go up because those things walk back out the door. I mean, you've got people you know in the military that you could help get this back into the hands of the military. Because at the time we worked close with um, with the MPs, with CID. We worked with them, helped them get together soldiers that were doing a little too much. And so they came to an agreement. They came into the possession of the company. They disappeared. When the fight broke out with his wife and my daughter's mom, later they reappeared in that warehouse on that day that he's riding past and the cops are at the warehouse. The agents are at the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And... So I go there as the manager for the company. I'm checking on the well-being of my employees because I can't reach them on phone and I need to know what's going on. Come right in. First thing the agent does. Oh, how you doing, Mr. Brian? Yeah. Um, well, uh, let me ask you a question. Do you know what these are? They look like Grenade rounds that I've seen in game Call of Duty. Or do you know if they're real? Now, see, that's the problem. I've never been in the military. So 
If you give me a bullet and put it in my hand, I never shot a bullet before. I don't know how much it weighs or is supposed to weigh. And we've got resin casts, cement casts, demilitarized rounds that look just like that. So outside of those dummy replica rounds and a video game, that's all I know about those. Well, we found nine of them and um, yeah, we're going to charge you with possession of explosive devices. You're going down for this. You can either tell us what you know about these or you can ride this train and get run over by it. Straight up. Same message that when they came to my house a couple weeks prior, mm -hmm. they delivered on my porch that we do this. We railroad people. Mm -hmm. You don't have the money to buy a $30,000 lawyer like your, like your boss does. He's going to get the lawyer. You're going to get a public defender. He's going to go home. You're going to prison. That's what they told me. All right. So, Mr. Bryan, so you're saying that you, um, you have access to this building, right? No, I don't. Oh, you don't? You're the company manager and you don't have access to the building? Nope. When we got a staff to run this facility, which did the online stuff for us and stored some of the excess gear and stuff that would come in that we would intake, they got the keys. They've got the access. They got the alarm codes. All that stuff got changed. I don't have access to this. Not only did I have access to the actual warehouse, where they found them at was another cinder block room that was locked and gated separately within the warehouse. It was a re it, was, it was specifically for storing high-end things. It was already in the building. And so they tried my keys. I gave them my keys. They tried my keys. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, they left me alone. I gave them a statement. I told them if I found any more stuff that is not supposed to be here, I'll let them know. Um, storage unit full of guns. Gave that to them. Storage unit full of ballistic plates. Gave that to them. 15 years for each gun. 15 years for each ballistic plate. 160 guns, 180 plates, I think it was. Somewhere around there, it totaled up to 2,260 years that they charged you for each individual item. That's what they were going to slap me and the owner with. And did they? They slapped the owner. Um, they 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 bound it down a little different. They did it like, okay, uh, selling guns without a per without a business license. That's ten years. Um, possession of um, explosive devices. That's fifteen years. And um, possession of ballistic plates. That's another fifteen years. Well, we'll work the deal down since you haven't had any priors. You don't have anything else on your record. Uh, they gave the owner nine years. He was a former ranger, the oldest to ever make it into ranger school. He did his time in his service for the country. He, he was an actual example of the American dream that you can come from a foreign land and come to America and have something. He worked in Brazil, saved up the money, and caught the bus from Brazil to America, washed dishes at a pizza joint, and taught himself English by watching TV and cartoons. Mm -hmm. And he was a really good guy with a really big heart. He just had some of the wrong people in his corner. 
and he took advice from some sources that didn't necessarily have his best interest at heart. Did he end up doing time? Yeah, he's still there. I think he'll be coming out. He should be due for parole next year. Next year, yeah. Because that'll be 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. They gave him nine years, so they gave him nine years and he gets two off. Total. So you only had to do seven. Wow. So then the question everybody's going to be wondering is like, what happened to you? Because you, you were adding up all these years. And obviously, even with the lesser charges, it's still a ton of time. And here you're sitting here right now. All right. So here it goes. They picked me up on Pula Parkway, June 29, 2015. I've got the, 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 the families with me. I'm picking up my daughter's mom from work. We're heading home. I have a busted taillight. Somebody told me that I had a taillight out and I had the money in my hand to go get the taillight. And I was just, I don't want her waiting out in the parking lot too long. It's already dark out here. I'll stop by Walmart and get the bulb for the taillight. And there was a cruiser sitting right there at the Shell gas station on the corner of Tango Boulevard and Pula Parkway. As I go by, he got right behind me. Follows us on down, pulls me over, runs my license and everything, comes back. He goes, um, you're going to, we have a SPD officer that wants to talk to you. I go, okay. Give me his number, I'll call him. You wouldn't by chance know what it's about. It could be about one of two things, but I'm thinking it's probably got something to do with this last job that I had. He's like, yeah, well, okay, we'll try and call him. Well, they say he's out of state. He's out of state. So you have to come with us. All right. She, my daughter's mom, she has no driver's license. She can't drive. I'm teaching her how to drive, but she doesn't have a driver's license, so they're not going to let her take the car and drive home with the children with a busted taillight at night. Mm -hmm. So... Now we've got to find a way to get you a ride to get home, get y'all a ride home. And I'm trying to help conduct this from the backseat of a police cruiser at this point. They were kind. That officer, that Pula PD officer, he was actually real gentleman about everything. He let me take off my knife. He let me take off my sidearm. He wasn't real jumpy about anything. He handled it very professionally. He was a cool dude. I wish I remembered his name. But they took me down to Carl Griffin to the Chatham County Jailhouse. And um, just kept me under the impression that once this other police officer is contacted, things will get kind of cleared up and we'll find out what it is about. Well, they turned me over to SPD. SPD hands me nine warrants for possession of explosive devices. Hmm. I'm sitting there in a holding tank. One of my customers from the military surplus store is in there with me. British guy, Special Forces, real cool. He was a trip. Super speed of law caught him. But he's out the next day. I'm still sitting there. Into the next day, I'm still in the holding area. So two days in, in booking because the jail's overcrowded. Finally, I meet a lawyer. Lawyer says, um, yeah, quick story, five minutes. Okay, well, I'll be down to the, you'll see me when you do the video court. 
They call my name, take me in front of a TV screen. There's the judge, there's the lawyer, there's the prosecutor. I've, I just met this lady, like, for five minutes in a loud holding cell of Chatham County Jail. Like, she's supposed to defend me. And you can't say anything, sir. If you say anything, we're going to hold you in contempt of court. In fact, let the lawyer speak for you and shut your mouth. Hey, wait, 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 I'm worried. Judge Harris Odell, I want to say this name. I, I voted for the man plenty of times. But Judge Harris Odell is the name signed on the warrants. He gets the warrants, nine copies of possession of explosive devices. Nine copies. And he's sitting there looking like he doesn't know where they came from. Uh, 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 why, why is this even in my court? Because your signature's all over it. What do you mean? Uh, I think this should be in Fed court. Shouldn't the feds be here? Uh, uh, bound him up. So at that moment, I found out that there's no bond for explosive charges. You just have to sit. There's no getting a job while you're in the jail, becoming a trustee, because they don't want you near anything that can be turned into a bomb or used to make a bomb. So no bleach, no ammonia, stuff like, no. Mm -hmm. They don't want you near none of that. And nobody comes. Silence. For the first month and a half, two months, silence. I'm waiting on the lawyer to come. Oh, she's been, she's no longer going to be the representative because they bounded up to state court. So now I got to wait for my state uh, attorney, attorney up here. Medium, great guy. He's like, look, I'm looking at the charges. They're not going to prosecute you on your charge. They can't. They didn't find it on in your house, on your person, in your vehicle. And they didn't find it in a building that you had access to. Mm -hmm. Okay? So they can't do anything with it. I'm like, all right, cool. He said, yeah, don't worry about it. You're going home. Okay? He said that in July. I got called to court in August. They bound my case up again and passed me over there like, look, somebody's not here. We're This agent is out of the country right now and we need him for his part of the testimony. They sit there and they make me sit. From August to December, I finally hear from my federal attorney. Yeah. She came in, great spirit, great vibe. We still actually talk to this day. And um, she's one of my biggest cheerleaders. I love her, uh, Laura. And we are walking through this thing, and she basically explained to me that here's the deal. Um, they're going to give you, they're going to, the deal is this. You can accept a plea bargain for lying to a federal agent. That carries a year time on it. And I'm going to work for getting you time served since you've already been sitting here in 10 months. Mm -hmm. And because they give you credit for a day or two days at the end of every month in the federal system, it comes out that 10 months in the county jail equals one year in the federal system. So 
The worst that might happen is that you'll have to go up the road to prison, to federal prison, be booked into the prison, receive your prisoner ID number, and then probably stay there for maybe a week or two and be on the next bus smoking back to Savannah. You'll probably be home before May. You accept the deal. All right, meanwhile, mother's getting sick. Little girl just turned two. And daughter's mom is freaking out and she's going to leave and take the kids and I'll never see her again. World coming apart. In jail. 10 months. Mm -hmm. That's December. Don't hear anything from my federal attorney until somewhere in January and February. And once the federal process started, it was one, two, three. She came in, said, hey, we're going to have you arraigned on this day. They're going to come get you, take you down to the federal courthouse, get you arraigned, and we'll get this handled. I get to the federal courthouse. They fingerprint me, book me into the federal system. I'm arraigned and booked into the federal system. I go down to the courtroom, sit there in front of the judge. We've already made the agreement that I'm going to take this plea deal. Get up. Judge says that, okay, you knew what these items were. Well, no. No, Your Honor. He has the military service, so he didn't know what these items were. Okay. So that's something that they struck from the language of the deal. Then they turned around and they said that I knew what they were when I purchased those rounds for the military surplus company that I worked for. All right. So you think that I'm just going to take this man's money and make a large decision like this without any input from anybody else that I just had that kind of power at the company? Right. No. It didn't work that way. So that had to be structured and changed the deal. And then we get to the part where, where um, you uh, uh, knew about this. And well, we got to change the ground. So the deal came down to I provided false information to a federal agent and that I should have known better, essentially. It's how they came around to it. Mm-hmm. But I find out that a federal prosecutor is allowed to lie on you during the pretrial proceedings so that you spend your entire trial, if you choose to take it that direction, fighting their lie instead of your truth, proving your truth. Hmm. Because the situation was if I didn't take the deal, then they were going to charge me with the same thing they charged the owner with, which was selling weapons under the without a business license. Yeah. Possession of guns, possession of ballistic plates. And if those plates that go in the vest, each one is like harboring a fugitive. 15 years for each one. Just for having a plate. What they don't tell you is that when some of those soldiers are getting out and they have extra plates, they're saying, there go, uh, well, here, here are all the plates I got. And they'll go... We don't need those. You've got 10 plates on your list. All 10 are accounted for. Those five are yours. I'm going to go be an IT specialist. What do I need with plates? Uh-huh. But those are yours. Mm-hmm. They don't take it back. But then when we went to court about the situation, the federal government used the argument of this. 
you stopped us from having the ability to claim our product by you taking possession of it. You stopped our process of us doing what we normally do with them. Mm. I had met CID agents. I had met DCIS police. You know, you see NCIS on TV. DCIS is the Department of Defense's Criminal Investigation Services. Those are the guys trying to make sure whether or not you um, have a Scud missile in your backyard if you're charging too much for a toilet seat to the military. Um, I got to meet former rangers that are now working with DCIS so that these people kick doors part-time and then they come and arrest you and might kick your door part-time. Yes, yeah, stuff's messed up, man. So how much time did you end up having to do after you went to the federal court? Did you have to go back and serve any more time or was it all done after that? The judge at the day of my arraignment, the federal judge said, time served and you have a $10,000 OR bond on recognizance. You, as long as you behave yourself and stay out of trouble, you're good. You don't have to pay the $10,000. You don't get that in the federal court. They don't do you like that unless it didn't have anything on you in the first place. Mm. But as they told me, because they didn't like my mouth, they didn't like the way that I spoke to them, that they were going to do this to me. They do it on the regular. And there was nothing that I could do about it. I went back to the county jail and okay, judge said I could go home today, cool. Chatham County held me for another week and a half, almost two weeks. I'm sitting there bugging the guards. At first, I wasn't bugging the guards about it. I was like, well, they'll, they'll let me out yeah. when all the paperwork clear. Then it was like over the weekend and the holiday here at the same time. I was like, okay, I got to wait for that. So now I'm going, wait, it's been almost a week and a half. And I'm like, dude, where's, I've got the paperwork right here. Please, sir, please take a look at this. I'm supposed to be gone. I was released by the federal judge. I, I took the deal. Chatham County can't prosecute me on those charges. They ran explosive charges through recorder's court. They dragged me through the entire system. Jeez. Recorder's court for speeding tickets and stuff like that. They took me to state court. Then they took me to superior court. Then they held me until the feds came in. The feds took over and took me to court. And they went on ahead I accepted the deal and they cut me loose from their side with um, three years supervised release, three years unsupervised release. So I would just report to them over my phone on a tablet once a month. Mm -hmm. And every so often my um, probation um, agent would call me and take a drug test. And Chatham County held me for almost another two weeks after the feds had already gave me the OR bond and let me go. And finally, one of the uh, guards that was real, he, he, he was a real good guy, Mr. Johnson, old school brother. He uh, would talk to me and teach me things and, you know, just make observances about the way I behaved. And 
he went and he checked for me. And next thing I know, they were calling my name. They took me around to the little video courtroom, had me sit there, and I would look at the TV screen, and there's there's my attorney, and okay, what they gonna say? Uh, yes, Your Honor, we choose no low pros prosecute, hey, no low process. Then they're not gonna prosecute on the charges. Mm -hmm. Cool. It still took them another two days to let me go home. Dragging you, dragging you, dragging you. Oh man. And for the longest, for, for I, I uh, once I got out. Of course, when thank some people, meet some people, and share with them how much I love that they supported me and helped me out, let them know that I was home, mm -hmm. and um, started trying to reclaim my life. Well, let's let's take it from there a little bit because we have to close down here in a, a few minutes. But man, I just quick follow up questions to all that. It's like, how did you? And how did you process all that? How are you working through it even to this day of kind of the effects it had on you personally being in prison when you shouldn't have been all that time and what it did to you and your, your family while you were gone and, you know, trying to get work and mentally getting through it all. Like how hard has it been from experiencing all that? It's been difficult because at first all I could get was little temp agency jobs because I was still on papers and I still had to report and all this right here. And um, last year, I went through the Chatham Apprentice Program, Step Up Savannah, United Way, mm -hmm. which is how, how I met your mm -hmm. friend that referred me to you for the COP podcast. Yeah, it's a good program. It, they've done a lot for me. Yeah. They, they made a, that, that made a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I got the chance to go back to their, to their when I went through their program, I found out the skills that I lacked. I found out how much I didn't know I didn't know. And how much has changed in the employment, um, employment industry, job seeking industry, how different things are done now. The verbiage and the way that you need to dress and the different interview processes. Mm -hmm. And they brought me up to speed on that. They gave me the opportunity to practice and polish my skills and to meet with people that were in the industries and logistics and hospitality that could tell you how to get a foot into those industries. And they helped me obtain a decent job. I was making more money than I'd ever made per hour on a job before. I started to get written job offers for $20 an hour. I was like, fuck, $20 an hour, $20 an hour. Hold on, let's do the math on this. Dude, that still only comes out to like thirty-six dollars to $39,000 a year. That ain't no money. <laughs> we need to get more money. So you, mean you need a job paying more than $20 an hour. Or else you need to kill yourself. Okay. That's, that's just too much there. So my family is still going through the shocks of it. Because right now, right now at this moment, I just learned um, last night that my daughter's mom is planning on taking the children and going to Ohio. Um, yeah, March 11th, she thought it was a great idea to hmm. try and pull off in the car while I was standing right there 
and I get caught up in the car and dragged and the car ends up in a building. Yeah, that's all these nice little dark marks right here. To being dragged by a car. Yeah. Holy cow. Carter came, got knocked in the head, got knocked out. Um, according to what the witnesses in the neighborhood told me, when they walked up, I wasn't breathing, I wasn't moving. And uh, he said he saw my eyes flicker. He called the, he got the cop, the phone from my daughter's mom. He called the paramedics, police, fire department. I can recall being on the ground and hearing the engines roll up. And hearing a voice going, okay, we got no pulse, no respiration. Up oh, there he goes. And being put on a, a backboard and slid into an ambulance. But I don't really remember seeing too much of any of the scene. I didn't see the car in the building. Um, I woke up on the ground. I The last thing I remember doing was... Opening the door after she got in the car, she shut the door. I opened the door again. I said, let me get my phone. And I woke up on the ground. And I've been going through the process for the last month with that. That caused me to have to tap out medically on my job that I was working at the Awesome Shippers. <laughs> we just say it like that, the Awesome Shippers. And um, because danger of being hit in the head and being reconcussed. Man, it's unbelievable. So, man, even as of last month, you're going through a lot. You were going through a lot. Well, kind of, it's a lot to process, man. I got a million other questions, but you know, I think think the thing that's really on my mind is all the things you've went through, from especially your health with sickle cell, and all the things that you have to go through with that, with the all the issues that happened with your time you had to spend in prison when you shouldn't have and kind of the mental and emotional side, especially of that and not knowing what's going to happen in your life. There had to be so much uncertainty of, could I be in prison forever? Am I going to get out of this to even now with, with family stuff? Like when somebody is going through what you have and you are going through, what can the average person do to make a difference in your life, whether they're a friend or not? They find out, man, this person is going through this. What what helps? What is it about what someone else can do that can just carry a little bit of that weight for you? After getting dragged by the car last month, when I came home from the ER and I started walking into different neighbors that had either seen me laying on the ground unconscious or heard about the wreck, Mm -hmm. And then finding out that it was me, as they came up to me, they let me know how much they loved me. Mm -hmm. From the crackhead, Mr. They call him ah, Mr. Ronald Ronell. That's his real name. I just call him old timer. I told him whenever you see me, if I got some change in my pocket, whatever you got it, you saved my life. Literally, he's the second person that has substance abuse issues, that has saved my life after a car wreck on Montgomery Street. When I was driving for the cab company, I hit seven trees in front of seven terrorists. And I have a steel plate in this side of my face. That's why this eye is off seeing what it want to see. 
And the lady that ran the laundromat, Miss K, used to have an issue, and she was one of the people that pulled me out of that cab that night. So I've been shown love. They let me know that they're glad I'm still around. One of the neighbors walked up and grabbed me and hugged me a couple of days later and cried and told me, don't, don't I ever scare him like that. He thought he lost me. Mm-hmm. And these are people that I just walked by and go, how you doing? What's up, man? Talk a little bit. Mm-hmm. To find out that my neighbors loved me that much and I made that much of a difference being in my neighborhood, just being the person that I am. And getting the chance to talk about this and have people Understand that it's real. I always believed in the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. I always thought every dog gets his day in court. And when I'd be sitting there watching the news and people they're talking about their stories and he he was in there for false being falsely accused or something. Yeah, man, you know you did it. <laughs> that used to be me. And, and yeah. now I'm finding out that it really doesn't take that much for you to get there. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't take. It's harder to stay out of jail now than it is to keep a job. It's really harder to stay out of jail now than it is to keep a job. Mm-hmm. And don't judge. Take your time. Listen to these people. I don't care how dirty they might look. I don't care how out their mind they might look. If you take your time sometimes to listen to them, you'd be amazed that a broken clock truly is right two times a day and that you can learn anything from anybody if you're willing to listen. Mm. All some new knowledge should cost you is a little bit of attention and time. That's all it should cost you. Yeah. That's you really know. good, man. Well, I appreciate your your vulnerability to share all the stuff that you've went through with your health and with your kind of the criminal process and all the things that you've been through with family and the pain you've experienced and it's not easy to share. I know you, you were willing to share, but still not easy to, and especially for anybody out there to listen to it because we have no idea who's going to watch and listen to this, but I really believe it can make an impact in other people's lives, whether they've gone through something you're going through or just, they might know somebody that's going through and now they have an opportunity to see it and, and help someone else that's been through some of the things you have. So I appreciate you being here Lamont, and uh, just thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. Um, I did an open mic event one night at the uh, Sentient Being, mm-hmm. and I told this story, and it was called 2,260 Years. And when I got through giving that version of the story to the crowd, people came up to me and they let me know that, wow, that's a lot. Dude, you got to keep telling this story. Let people know that stuff really goes down like this. It really does. Mm -hmm. And it just takes somebody not having their paperwork in in, in proper order. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's amazing. Well, again, thank you for being here. Man, I really appreciate it. Quinn, thanks for producing. City Church, thanks for hosting. Thank you very much. And uh, appreciate you all being being our guest on the Neglected Podcast and listening and watching Lamont's story. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Peace. Thank you.